Bad news. Bad news for the state. Bad news for capital. Bad news for patriarchy. Bad news for all forms of domination. Bad news. Angry voices from around the world. Our monthly info show from anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio projects worldwide. If these news are bad, I don't want to be good. Welcome to Bad News, Angry Voices from Around the World for January 2024. This is episode number 75. This month, we're bringing you segments from four members of the network of anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio and podcasts. First up, Chernoluknia prepared an interview about the anti-fascists detained in Budapest or arrested on international arrest warrants following the so-called Day of Honor and subsequent fascist gathering on February 11th, 2023, as well as the Solidarity Campaign for Freedom and Support for these comrades. Then you'll hear Anya of Solidarity Collectives speaking with Frequenza about the case of Ruslan Siddiqui, an anarchist imprisoned in Russia accused of sabotage against the Russian war on Ukraine. Next, The Final Straw presents a portion of our recent interview with Yuval Dog an Israeli anarchist who served two months in prison for refusing military conscription. Yuval is a member of the anti-militarist group Mezarvot, and you can find more information about them at linktr.ee slash m-e-a-a-r-v-o-t. Finally, A-Radio Berlin shares a translation of part of an interview with a person who was involved for many years in the distribution of the clandestine magazine Radical back in the 1980s and 1990s, which was very important for the autonomous movement of that era. To hear more of our episodes, learn about the network, and possibly get involved, check out the information at a-radio-network.org. And consider following our Mastodon account on collectiva.social by searching at a-radio-network. Today, uh, we want to speak with you about the campaign to support the anti-fascists that have found themselves under pressure in Budapest. Uh, So, can you first tell us a little bit about what exactly happened in Budapest? Yes, of course. This February in Budapest, uh, the celebration of the Day of Honor took place, which is a neo-Nazi gathering in Hungary uh, that um, takes place around the second week of February every year since 1997. And it is called the Day of Honor, and it has become one of the largest and more, most important networking meetings of the neo-Nazis team. Uh, of all all around Europe and this year uh, like every year uh, about 150 anti-fascists from various anti-fascist groups uh, opposed the neo-nazis with a demonstration and they gathered in a Buddha castle in Budapest on February uh, 11th but this year um, uh, during these days uh, something has happened too and in the surrounding area of the meeting, some Nazis have been hunted and physically attacked. 
In this context, two comrades have have been arrested in the day, in that day, and they have been imprisoned since February the 11th. As far as the accusations are concerned, the Italian comrade Ilaria is accused of serious injuries with the aggravating circumstances of a criminal conspiracy and attempted murder. And the other two defendants are accused of being part of the criminal organization that acted in those days. This criminal organization, uh, the understand, is the same which the German state is trying to investigate in an operation against all the anti-fascist movement all over Germany, uh, which is named uh, Antifaust. And they suppose, Germany suppose, there is a criminal organization that has the aim of attack the Nazis. And lots of uh, anti-fascists there are being persecuted for the for that at the moment with a big operation, with uh, house searches and arrests. And this operation aims at spreading fear, actually, both among comrades and among all the people showing them solidarity. So the result is a big criminalization campaign against all the anti-fascist movement that is now, since last February, crossing the borders of Germany with the strict cooperation of the two states, Germany and Hungary, and maybe to Italy too. Can you tell us a bit more what is uh, happening now with uh, the international anti-fascists that were targeted by the state? Are they in prison? Are they outside? What's happening with the trial? Yeah. Actually, so there are the two comrades that are still arrested in Budapest and, and there were two more uh, arrests because the investigation about the aggression has been closed at the end of October, more or less, and the trial will start on, for them on the 29th of Germany. And it will be the, the first trial, so the one of the two imprisoned and another anti-fascist, which is free in uh, Germany, will uh, yes will, will start at the end of January. But uh, at the end of the investigation, Hungary issued also 14 other European arrest war- warrants against other 14 people. And two of these have been already arrested. One in Italy, which is Gabriele, and one in Germany, which is Maya. Gabriele uh, is now on house arrest at home, and he has all the restrictions, so he can't speak with Adimadi out of his family. And Maya, the other comrade in Germany, is imprisoned in there, in prison. And their extradition process is now ongoing, so they, they are waiting the... The, the judges to decide for their addiction. Yes, she's in, pre, in, in the cell 23 hours a day. There are bed bugs, rats, um, the food is degraded. Uh, the inmates, uh, when they have, when they move from, uh, from the prison to the trial, they are kept on a leash. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And, yeah. And, I think yeah. we 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 get the picture. So uh, two comrades are still almost one year uh, in detention, waiting for their trials, yeah. while uh, other comrades have been uh, also arrested and are waiting yeah, for yeah. extradition extradition cases. And uh, there is also a big, of course, um, solidarity campaign to support. Yeah. So there is a solidarity 
publicity campaign going on both in Germany and Italy, but of course we are organizing also a lot of discussions all over Europe. And at the moment in Italy we are very concentrated on the fight against the extradition of Gabriele to and the next hearing will be on the 13th of January. We await the decision of the judges or that it will be postponed again. And we are organizing a big demonstration in Milan on the 16th of uh, January. And in the demonstration, we will claim the importance of uh, militant anti-fascism, uh, which refuses to delegate the fight against Nazis and fascist ideology to the institution. And in this context, uh, we are the opinion that those who organize to resist and to fight the violence of state capital and their extreme right wing watchdogs are faced with ever more extensive and aggressive repression. Where can we find more information about this campaign? We have actually, we are publishing on an international uh, campaign website, which is called Basque.news. And from the Italian side, we also have an Instagram page, which is called uh, Solidarietà Antifa Budapest. We have uh, heard a lot of information from you, both on the negative side, of course, about the, the enormity of the repression, but also, of course, encouraging uh, info about uh, efforts to um, sustain anti-fascist movement, anti-capitalist movement, also uh, in the regime of oppression yes thank you very much for calling us bye bye madonna se to ikuško kurde blahajka barbadec se moš pa je ampak se je tule ni nobenega reda nobene discipline se sploh ne veš kdo komandira vsak ma besedo na svobodo se pripravljajo to je tist na svobodo vas pripravlja črna luknja Anarchistični glas na Radio Študent. Hi, first of all, thank you that you were finding time to talk with us. Uh, maybe you can introduce yourself uh, as you like with your preferred name, pronoun and um, affiliation, which makes sense to our talk today. I'm Anja, member of a group called Solidarity Zone. If you can tell a little bit uh, to those who don't know, what is Solidarity Zone? Solidarity Zone is a grassroots uh, initiative that provides legal and uh, humanitarian and media help uh, to those arrested for anti-war direct action in Russia. It can be set in fire on uh, administrative buildings Uh, and uh, military recruitment officers, it can be railroad sabotage and similar actions against Russian war machine and government itself. We appeared firstly <laughs> as a group of friends uh, who already, mm, each of us uh, was involved in uh, prisoner support before full-scale invasion into Ukraine. After 24th of uh, February 2022, we noticed in, in the news that uh, some actions, anti-war actions, are not uh, matching criteria of support of uh, liberal human rights organizations. They didn't organize defense of uh, persons who committed radical actions against war. And uh, firstly, we decided just to uh, 
like informal group to defend uh, several people that uh, that we found in pretrial detention centers. And then uh, more such uh, cases appeared and we realized that we need uh, to call ourselves somehow and uh, create social media accounts to spread the word about prisoners, about uh, kind of protest, because it's uh, on the one hand, it's pretty idealized by different groups, actually. Yeah, thanks uh, for this uh, brief explanation about uh, what Solidarity Soon is doing. Hello from my side as well. Today we wanted to uh, specifically talk about the case of Ruslan Siddiqui. Um, maybe you can first of all explain to our listeners uh, what the case is about. Uh, we know this case uh, because a friend of Ruslan sent us mail with uh, information about his arrest. After that, we sent a lawyer to Ruslan and through through the lawyer uh, asked him to tell us a bit more about uh, his case and about his position. After that, we together with Ruslan and uh, his uh, his friends who contacted us decided to organize his support together. Ruslan is uh, accused and uh, he doesn't deny uh, these uh, accusations. He derailed 19 carriages of cargo train in uh, Rizan region. Uh, he made uh, self-made explosives uh, in two spots on the railway and uh, watched uh, through the camera uh, he installed near the railroad. He was waiting when uh, cargo train, military supply train will pass this part of railway and uh, then to blow the rails and uh, derail the train. Actually, his plan was to destroy the rails and uh, stop for some time uh, moving of uh, military supply trains. But uh, the train which was uh, derailed by, by Ruslan wasn't uh, used by Russian military. Yeah, but anyway, um, this part of railroad was destroyed and uh, the damage, um, according to Russian railway company, uh, was named like uh, 30 millions rubles. And yeah, it took time to uh, restore the moving of uh, cargo trains in this part. And uh, also uh, pro-governmental media wrote after Ruslan's arrest that he organized also a drone attack on military airport from where aircrafts uh, going to like to provide uh, the bombs for Russian military in Ukraine. But uh, officially uh, this case not yet uh, began and uh, the accusation uh, wasn't yet official. So that means it was only published on the, the media. He, he didn't receive any formal accusation about uh, the airbase case so far. Yeah, uh, but we, uh, I think we should wait because sometimes pro-governmental media uh, publish something that uh, then appears in criminal case. So we can't unfortunately say that uh, it wasn't in near future. <laughs>
wouldn't be. Maybe you can say some more words from my point of view. It's like quite strong position to don't uh, deny that the accusations about the derailment. Is it because of, of uh, that there's that much evidence that he, he is not able to deny it anyway? Or is it also kind of a political position uh, that he is like, say, that's uh, really like this kind of actions is something, I don't know, he can stand for or because of his ideology or his beliefs or whatever. I can't say for sure, but uh, I think it's uh, mostly about uh, position in any case we where we support people uh, because uh, in several cases actually persons uh, who are like under the trial now and uh, they are from the very beginning of uh, their case they decide to uh, to be agree with actions uh, they did yeah and i think in the case of uh, ruslan it should be same but also Maybe it's important to say that it, it can be uh, several hours uh, between uh, real arrest of a person and kind of official arrest. And uh, this time very often used uh, by uh, security service uh, like Fesbre or uh, cops for torturing people, for uh, beating them to get some proper like words, uh, witnessing uh, against themselves. And uh, I think it can be also part of the reason why people uh, sign in documents with accusations. Talking about the political uh, perspective, uh, you didn't mention it, but as it's uh, written in different articles, uh, Ruslan is an anarchist. And does he also do some statements now out of prison? Yeah, we know from uh, Ruslan's friends that uh, he's anarchist. Uh, he's have actually a lot of interests uh, that can be topics for letters to him. Yeah, but uh, we didn't establish uh, strong contact with him. So we are not yet in letter exchange. Uh, it was just more technical visits of lawyers. So for now, we, we can say very little about his political views, about uh, something more about his personality. Uh, but I think it should be possible. Uh, maybe uh, during the so-called investigation uh, because uh, first time when uh, Ruslan facing the most pressure from security services, from prison staff and uh, in other cases we see that after several months of detention it becomes uh, easier and it starts to be possible to ask lawyer to talk with prisoner to ask him or her about interests, about political statements or something that a person would like to spread outside of prison. What is by now with the accusation which Ruslan has already officially, what does it mean? Uh, how many years of imprisonment he can get? Uh, he is accused on two articles. It's always difficult for me to, to count uh, years. I guess up to 20 because the first one is terrorist act. And second one is uh, uh, keeping explosives. Also, in several languages in the articles about the case, people can also find an address to write letters to Ruslan. 
At the same time, there is this uh, relatively new law, uh, which is uh, making it problematic or nearly illegal to communicate with uh, foreigners because this could be uh, counted as a traitorship of the country. Does it still make sense for people who are not in Russia to write letters for political prisoners? Uh, sorry, I didn't understand which law do you mean? About confidential... Yeah, yeah, confidential interactions with foreigners, which can be yeah also problematic, make it illegal to communicate. I guess uh, this uh, law mostly done for people who are free yeah, to make more criminal cases but i don't know about so uh, yeah even i can't remember if uh, somebody between prisoners uh, even mentioned that so from your perspective it is still uh, makes <laughs> sense to write letters Of course, but uh, the only point here is that uh, censorship in Russian prisons allows only letters in Russian, so you need to use uh, online translator or to ask uh, someone who speaks Russian uh, to translate the letter, and uh, there are a couple of services uh, that still quite good working with uh, foreign telephone numbers, foreign bank accounts, uh, like prison mail, and uh, a bit more complicated for Zona Telecom. These two services is possible to, to use from outside of Russia. Right. Um, apart writing letters, um, is there other opportunities to support Ruslan and or your work as uh, Solidarity soon? Now there is uh, uh, maybe easiest uh, possibility to support Ruslan directly is to donate uh, for the work of his lawyer because uh, right now we are running a fundraiser for lawyer yeah and uh, if uh, here may be uh, a question about uh, importance of uh, of legal defense in Russia now the most important for us as as a group is to have a connection with person in prison without censorship and possibility to organize uh, maybe sometimes uh, not really legal but uh, kind of solidarity and showing that a person uh, isn't uh, left alone yeah emotional support also good lawyer is uh, is only possibility to uh, tell to outside of prison uh, about tortures about uh, bad conditions yeah because uh, it's a really common thing that prison staff uh, maybe don't do something directly against uh, political prisoners, but just putting them in such living conditions uh, when, for example, uh, there is no part of glass in the window and uh, the winter starting and uh, doing such things uh, that uh, make their life more difficult. Is there anything else uh, you think is important to say as about the case of Ruslan or about your work in general or, yeah, as uh, the previous question was also how to support you directly? Yeah, actually, there are not much possibilities from outside, but uh, I mean, from outside of Russia, because uh, when we write posts in social media in Russian, we also ask people to send uh, parcels to pretrial detention center because uh, it's not limited yet, like in prison then, uh, because in prison there are very few packages uh, you may receive a year. Yeah, and actually <laughs> about prisoners, yeah, it's uh, only two possibilities. 
artists to write letters and uh, to donate to for certain campaigns. Yeah, and also, of course, spreading information is very important and uh, it's also kind of protection uh, for prisoners and uh, for us also. And uh, about supporting us, first option is uh, financial support. We have Patreon page or also we know that Patreon offers uh, a lot of fees for people who would like to donate us. So we really happy when uh, somebody organizes uh, events uh, in solidarity with us and find uh, some ways to avoid Patreon. <laughs> also, yeah, spread the information, uh, calling us to events. Also great support. Thanks a lot for the interview and a lot of respect for the people in Russia fighting back and or trying the very possible to fight back and um, a lot of respect for your work and thanks a lot, a lot of strength for you. Yeah, from me too. Thank you and thank you for invitation. Next, The Final Straw presents a portion of our recent interview with Yuval Dog an Israeli anarchist who served two months in prison for refusing military conscription. Yuval is a member of the anti-militarist group Mezarvot, and you can find more information about them at linktr.ee slash m-e-a-a-r-v-o-t. If you want to hear the rest of this interview with Yuval Dog, check out our January 21st, 2022 episode at thefinalstrawradio.noblogs.org. Thank you. Uh, my name is Yuval. He, him. I have refused military service this uh, last year and spent uh, two months in jail for it. It was before the war. Um, and yeah, ever since I'm... Uh, doing activism regarding anti-militarism in Israel, and there's been a lot in the West Bank and Safriata and all that. And now, of course, activism against the war. So I, I think that the status of military service and essentially the, the militaristic dogma is in Israel is, is one of the most differentiating things between the Israeli society and, uh, let's say, other supposedly Western countries. Socially, it has the biggest uh, standing, you know, your group of friends is the group of people you served in the army with, and later it uh, dictates what job you'll go into. Yeah, and then legally, of course, it's, it's mandatory for both men and women, and I think that it's like the tightest conscription in the world, and uh, refusing military service uh, means going to military jail. Although a lot of people manage to get exempted, um, right now the amount of people who don't finish their, their mandatory service uh, is uh, 50%, but that includes uh, Palestinians and uh, ultra-Orthodox. Some Palestinians do uh, need to enlist. So just to put it in context, I think it's, need, it's needed to be mentioned that Zionism runs so, so deep in the society and the personality of uh, Israeli people. It's, it's something that is much more than ideology. It's an identity, and it's an identity that most people don't necessarily even realize that is with them. And, and one of the hardest things when trying to, let's say, convert Zionist people is their, the inability of a Zionist to face the truth. And a lot of people, you know, just speak to about the occupation and about the horrible things that happen, and either it doesn't affect them, and they say, yeah, 
yeah, yeah, it's totally horrible, but they might actually disconnect and still go to the army or something. And a lot of people just say, no, no way that this is happening because the IDF is the most moral army in the world just because it's the IDF, stuff like that. So there is kind of like a protective shield between Zionists and the true reality. And, and therefore, I think that the Israeli propaganda machine is, is probably the most efficient in, in the history of nation states. And yeah, luckily for me, I, I can't really say why I, I had the ability to develop my own critical thinking at some point. And pretty late into my process, even though when I was like kind of on the fence, even when you hear like pro-Palestinian arguments, which aren't necessarily pro-Palestinian, but generally are just pro-human rights or whatever, mm-hmm. you still become very defensive and say, no, that's not the full picture. No, but Jews this. No, but Jews that. So we have a saying that, you know, everybody has a little Zionist, in it, even the ones who managed to leave this world. But yeah, at some point, I just encountered some uh, explanation videos. It's called Hasbara in Hebrew. It's, it's like, it means explanation, and it's like something that the Israeli government puts money into. And it, it, what it is, it's propaganda abroad. And that's what it is. So I, I encountered an explanation video of some guy uh, fighting with some other guy. And the other guy um, said stuff in the case of Palestinians, and he said stuff that was factually correct. But it still managed to anger me. How can he say this? Mm-hmm. Uh, we are the victims. Um, no, that. And I became uncomfortable with that. I, I said, like, like why, why the hell am I getting uncomfortable for this? He's saying stuff that is correct so i I felt that i was that i needed to dive deeper and re-examine things that i have been indoctrinated about and yeah i just uh, started the social media diving down into either palestinian um, independent media or uh, radical israeli jewish media and uh, all of a sudden you see this crazy reality that exists 10, 20 kilometers from, your, from where you grew up. And it's unbelievable at first. You say, like, how does, it, how does this stuff correlate with all of the things that I grew up on for 18, 19 years? And then, and then you reach, like, a breaking point, which if you're open enough, like I was, you just, like, snap out of it and you realize, like, whoa, what's going on here is totally not the reality that they teach us. I must resist. Or you reach this point and, and you're not open to it enough and then you just live your life on two different planes. And I have friends and I know a lot of people who, although they acknowledge the occupation, they, they manage to finish uh, military service while feeling, while feeling guilty for them. But in the end, they will be a part of Israeli society and they probably go to the reserves and so once you reach this point of acknowledgement, you have these two ways to go to. And I was uh, lucky enough to go to the right, what I think is the right way. The, the anarchist framework, actually, I think it's what allowed me pretty much to develop my stance on what's going on here. Because it's much easier to get into politics when it's far away from you and when it's like grand and historical and so, so I developed all these, you know, as, as every teenager does, you develop these uh, certain morals and uh, codes. Most uh, far leftists go to the communist way in Israel. 
Mm. But uh, I went the, the anarchist way and, you know, after developing all these anarchist ideas, I, I had to face the Israeli-Palestinian reality at some point because my draft was coming up. And I said, like, whoa, now I believe, you know, everybody should be free. I believe everybody should be happy. Does the army serve these things? Um, so, so for me, anarchism was the gateway for anti-Zionism and resisting the occupation. And, and, you know, I still try to follow <laughs> these ideas to this day. Uh, first of all, we are not allowed to encourage refusal. That is a punishable offense. Gotcha. Um, so we at Mesavot also don't encourage to people to not enlist. Uh, we encourage people to think twice. Yeah. Say it like that. What I have to say for people, to people, you know, who are thinking about this is that, you know, Israel is 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 this super militaristic place for 75, 80 years since its inception. And, and yet we have now saw the worst event for Israeli security since the beginning of the state. For me, it shows a very clear thing, which is that the army does not protect. Them. You know, the Israeli defense force does not defend. The occupation and the military, which are two inseparable things, cause more harms to Israelis than, you know, they, they claim to, to mitigate. And, and yeah, that's, you know, October 7th just showed it very well. And even, you know, the, the aftermath, now that Israel is waging a revenge war on Gaza, there is no military solution. And it's shown very clearly because when we try to reach a military solution, a genocide happens, some would say on purpose. So taking part in this machine, taking part... And this concept is in itself what, you know, drives peace away. Because while the army exists, while our society is so militaristic, and while the army is everywhere, there can't be peace. Because the existence of the army as is, is, you know, a message to the Palestinians. You know, we are waging war on you. And while the IDF exists, we won't ever reach a solution. I, I truly believe that. And especially now, you know, this war serves nothing mm. for the Israeli side. It, it, it doesn't benefit us in any way. What can listeners do to support you and anyone else who is seeking to refuse military service? And how can folk learn more about Mesarvot? We are actually gathering donations right now. So if you go to our uh, socials, um, you can find the link there and support us. And yeah, just follow us and, and amplify our voices um, because it, it does help, you know, that the world hears that there are Israelis refusing to cooperate um, with this thing because, again, I, I do truly believe that we need to show an alternative. Um, we can't only resist the current situation. We also need to show an alternative. And uh, we are trying to show the alternative. So, uh, yeah, supporting us is great. And in general, you know, just resisting the war, coming to Palestine. If, if you have the ability, um, then coming to Palestine, to the West Bank, you know, being in protective presence, it's also a possibility. Um, and people do it. And it's, you know, it's, it's probably the, the most efficient way people can join and uh, help.
The following is the translation of a part of an interview A Radio Berlin did with Franz, a person who was involved for 10 years in the clandestine distribution of the autonome newspaper Radikal in the 1980s. The complete German version will be released soon. If you are interested in getting an English version of that as well, reach out to us and let us know. Could you briefly outline the context in which you came to the Radical newspaper? What was going on politically in the Federal Republic of Germany at the time? What did autonomous politics look like back then? What did it mean to you? Yes, I'm going to go back a bit. It was basically after the Chernobyl revolt that was in April 1986. There was a very strong militant mobilization against the nuclear power plant projects. Then there were the serious riots on May 1st in Berlin, in Kreuzberg, which then took place on an unprecedented scale. Then there was also the parallel mobilization of the Hafenstraße in September and October, so that the squads will be held. And this campaign ran throughout the year, so to speak, and was very strongly supported by women and lesbian groups, anti-imperialist groups and also social revolutionary groups. But autonomous politics, they already existed at the time, or autonomous politics developed then, so to speak? Autonomous politics, actually it was just an idea, that is, actually in 1978, 79, 80, You had basically autonomen politics as such. There were the autonomen and there was also the term for these militants who appeared in the streets in black masks as the autonomen and also as a self-designation. But it was also always a form of self-irony. The Frankfurt magazine was called Vollautonom and in Hamburg it was called the Große Freiheit and here in Berlin it was the Radikal. But these were all newspapers that dealt with militant autonomous politics. And because a movement like this also reaches its high point at some point, it splits at some point, and then you have a founding of autonomous antifas, autonomous women's groups, autonomous peace groups and so on. The Berliners even made a bit of fun of themselves because with autonomous this and autonomous that, because the Vessis, people in West Germany, just had to add autonomous in front of everything. But in actuality, at that time, the autonomen were already over. It no longer had that same charisma, and people defined themselves by their politics that they were doing. And that was that then. Some kind of refugee support politics, or anti-racism groups, or anti-fa, or being basically against labor exploitation by certain types of employers, who then get named and shamed. Those were different kinds of confrontations. The autonomen thing didn't really exist in that sense anymore. It was still called that, but in actuality, all the scenes had already differentiated themselves. To what extent was uh, autonomen politics in Germany influenced by the Italian autonomia? Were there points of intersection? How did they interact? What was the relationship like? The relationship was like this. The whole autonomy movement basically emerged from 77 and it was called Autonomia. But they were really, even if you wouldn't phrase it like this nowadays, they were called urban Indians. And coming from that, they also set up radios. They had a very strong movement at the universities. So in Bologna, there was a very strong movement. And that basically degenerated into the fact that 
and this also came out in the last issue of Radikal, there were shootings and demonstrations at police. And the autonomia was criminalized and 4,000 people ended up in prison, which of course had an impact and resonated. But in that sense, this was actually more during the time of the spontis, the spontaneous street protests. And for the autonomen, it was more about defining themselves in the context of distancing themselves from the alternatives, alternative people, who were saying stuff like, we want to build a new ecological society. And the autonomen were saying, what's the point of a new society when everything is broken anyway? And coming from this destructive structure, They thought, okay, let's occupy houses so that we can do something in the here and now. And this autonomous thinking, self-determined and collective was more the focus, not the idea of referring to another movement, because the squatter scene was more relating to Amsterdam, Zurich, Copenhagen and Berlin. And in that sense, because also all those evictions then took place, there was also international solidarity actions throughout the country. There were solidarity statements when evictions occurred in the local scenes and the reference was actually more to the autonomen, which developed in this territory of the Federal Republic. Because you could also speak with them and visit them. A lot of the visits, of course, were more local, maybe to Amsterdam or sometimes Copenhagen, Zurich. But you had to make politics on the spot where you were. Because you just mentioned that shots were fired in Italy, there were also shots fired at some point in Germany at the demonstration. Was there a direct connection? Yes, that's basically resulting from a feeling of a kind of powerlessness towards the police. But this powerlessness is the result of the fact that they naturally react with repression. But the question back then was whether we could then change the social relation with firearms. That didn't turn out to be the case, and the result was that people were arrested very quickly. There was no radicalization, unlike in Italy, where there were really a lot of people who became radicalized. It was more like the end of the movement, and it was very, very quiet. There were no more solidarity actions with the autonomen, because you couldn't just take people to a demonstration, because they might actually start shooting. How should you deal with that? Well, it became more like a vacuum. Above all, you have to bear in mind that the shots were fired on November 2nd and the big demo to enforce the Hafenstraße was on October 31st. Could you mention the year we are talking about? 2nd of November 1987 and then 31st of October 1987 was the big Hafenstraße demo. There were... Well, you could say that there were around 2,000 people with helmets. And the enforcement of this demonstration was already... Well, people didn't think that one could enforce it. And then it did get enforced. And it certainly was maybe also a catalyst for what then happened on the 2nd of November, where people said, we will now shoot back. And that was even welcomed by hanging a banner up in the Hafenstraße with the slogan, two to zero. In a certain sense, of course, it was about having a big mouth. And the other is also to reflect on whether that is really the next step in a revolutionary organization, to really shoot policemen, or rather how to devote oneself to a project like the Hafenstraße, which then also became independent. Maybe today we can't even imagine that anymore. But then it was actually met with composure by the Hamburg city parliament. No matter what one thinks about that, it did not have an escalating effect. Instead, they said, well, the days of the barricades have begun. 
And those were real barricades, very handsome ones, with large metal supports and also cars, and they also dug ditches for gasoline, if it comes to that. There were also some skirmishes at some of the barricades. And then the city parliament made an offer of negotiation and said, well, if you dismantle those barricades, you get legalization of the squats. And that was then on the 16th of November, as far as I can remember. So if you imagine an atmosphere of shooting policemen on the 2nd of November, 87, and then on the 17th of November, you suddenly enforce the Hafenstraße, which in a way was the last great success of the autonomen organization. And afterwards begins in a way something new, namely to deal with Antifa, with the German Republican Party, much more extensively, and dealing with the question of refugees and the reunification of the country in that sense. Because back then, suddenly there was a whole new Germany. Since you now have described the circumstances a bit, this was also the time when you ended up at Radikal. Yes, somehow I did. When I was approached, the first thing was, of course, about distributing the Radikal. Because it had to be distributed nationwide in some way. For that, you needed contact persons, and these contact persons have to be able to distribute them, so to speak. Because you can't just say to someone random, hey, how about it? Can you distribute it? There must be clear trust, not to cause mistrust, when someone suddenly arrives with a Radikal paper. So people already had to know who they are dealing with. And that's how you got chosen. In this context, it was like that. We were distributing the Radikal and then we were asked to also set up groups. So we also set up a group. Then we were asked to get a postal address in Amsterdam. So we just got the postal address. And in that sense, you just slip further and further into it because it becomes more and more your own project. And it's no longer the question whether you continue it or not. But there are possibilities because... Let's say, especially in Holland, all these disputes that were going on there, especially in relation to the ANC in, and South Africa and Shell, which was, of course, there much more pronounced than in Germany. And you could basically also convey that the Shell campaign, why in Holland, all these Shell petrol station, the taps were being cut off. So basically, people couldn't use it anymore. It was pushed to such an extent that until to this day, Shell has not published their slump in sales when this Shell boycott movement was active. So it just went on until 92, 93, I think. Because then I think Nelson Mandela slowly became visible and the whole point of the boycott in South Africa also disappeared. So the boycott shell campaign was against apartheid in South Africa? Yes, because of course the support in Holland was different. They had a tradition with the Buren in South Africa. And this tradition was also addressed. And with our colonial consciousness here in Germany, we had less to do with South Africa. Except that Germany has always built Mercedes-Benz and the Unimox drive around with them over there in the townships. And we dealt with that here. And of course, South Africa has always been strategically supported militarily by the German government. I have a quick question. As you mentioned this in the talk prior to the interview, the Radikal was a legal magazine in its early days. Yes, this is a sad chapter from 1984, where it then became illegal. Because before, the Radikal had a public editorial office. And there were even public plenaries. 
At the beginning of the autonomous scene or the autonomous organization, there were plenaries where 60 people came, and then 60 people were trying to figure out in that context how to convey to the Berlin scene what is now important for them. And the resonance was, of course, very large. And then from that came also the idea that the slogan, which was on the first radical cover, namely socialist newspaper for West Berlin, that was cut off. And then we had new slogans for each issue, like for adventure and freedom or for the leisure society and so on. So each month or week people in the plenaries came up with new slogans. The resonance was there and people also started to write letters to the editor or came directly to a plenum. And all that basically became superfluous after 84. When I also got involved in 87, it was clear to us that you have to be reachable somehow. You also want to be reachable. You want to have subscriptions. And people pay for it and they hand over their address. And in general, for us, a foreign address was the only secure address. Because then the German police has no access. And these foreign addresses were mostly from friendly magazines, which had a similar past than the Radikal, but were not criminalized in the other Western European countries. Because in those countries, they have a different concept of the freedom of the press. In Germany, it is very strict when it comes to the freedom of the press. If there's any sort of acknowledgement or confession in a magazine, then you'll be banned. Or if you're calling for any militancy, then that's it, and the newspaper will be banned. And that was different in the other European countries. So in Vienna, Copenhagen and Amsterdam, among others, we had very selective addresses for that purpose. And in that sense, we were then accessible again.